Today's reading is taken from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all of the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the parties of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, because they feared the people would stone them. Then the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed while hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Man of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, 
rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rebecca. If you do have your Bibles, keep it open to chapter 5. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. It is powerful, and we pray that your spirit will convict us of the truthfulness of your word, that we may live boldly for you. In Jesus' name, amen. It might not be such a relevant question, but I want to start out by asking the question, would you die for your faith? Would you die for your faith? It's difficult for us to imagine this question because we live in the comforts of Hong Kong, but this was a live question for 21 Christians who were killed, the Coptic Christians who were killed in Egypt a couple of weeks ago. And it is a live question for 200 Christians who were kidnapped in Syria. If you were given a choice, whether to abandon your faith or to die, what would you do? I hope you will say that you would rather die than to abandon Christ. But if you did say that you would rather die than to abandon uh, abandon your faith, then I want to ask why. I want to ask, how can you be so sure of your faith? How can you be so sure that you would rather die than to deny Christ? What makes you so sure? Peter and the apostles in the book of Acts are fearless when it comes to the gospel. They go and proclaim Jesus' name no matter what the consequences are. And there is a reason for this. This is because they are so sure of their faith. In fact, Luke wrote this book, book of Acts, but also the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, to give us certainty of faith as well. Remember, he writes in chapter 1, 3, 4. I'll just uh, read the, the, the end of it. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. You see, Luke writes not to convert Theophilus, but to give him certainty of the things that he has been already taught. He is a Christian. But Luke wrote these books, books, Gospel of Luke and, and Book of Acts, to give him certainty that what he had been taught is true. And we can, we also can learn from these books. We also can get the certainty of our faith from these books. So he does that in the Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. He does that in Acts. He gives us evidence for our faith, for Christianity. And I'm just going to mention a few just from the book of Acts. There are lots of them in, in, in Luke as well. But first, in the book of Acts, think about what happened on, at the Pentecost. People spoke in different languages. This wasn't some unintelligible language that had to be interpreted by somebody. This was foreign language. They spoke foreign languages. People were puzzled by it. He then records Peter healing a man who was born lame and who had been lame for 40 years. This wasn't some psychological healing, peace of mind. This man never had walked in his life, and he walked after 40 years. They don't deny, the authorities don't deny the miracles. They only ask, remember the question that they ask, they ask, by what power or name did you do this? And then there was the sudden death of Ananias and Sapphira, as we read last week, which made everybody realize that God was in this world and he was to be feared. And now in our chapter, 
Luke records that apostles performed in verse 12 many miracles and signs. Signs and wonders in verse 12. And there's so much healing that people just long to bring uh, their, their sick so that the, the, uh, Peter's, Peter's uh, shadow would fall on them. And Luke it says in verse 16 that all of them were healed. And today we read that there was that miraculous escape from prison. During the night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them at the, at the, at the door and brought them out, verse 19. And the captain of the temple, the chief priests, were puzzled by it in verse 24. And one of the biggest evidence also is what Peter and the apostles preach about. He didn't preach about, he didn't preach that Jesus was a good man, that we should follow him because he was a good man, because he was a good teacher, because he, he didn't, they didn't preach about some philosophy of life. He didn't even directly preach about love, which is what people think that Christianity is all about. It's about love. But take a look at what Peter preaches about in verse 30. He says there that God exalted Christ from the dead, even though that they had killed him. He preaches about the resurrection. He preaches about a historical fact that they can point to. And the interesting thing is that the authorities don't dispute the, the fact of the empty tomb. Nobody actually says, look, but there is Jesus. He is there in that tomb. Nobody says that because at that time, they knew that the fact that the tomb was empty. No one could say Jesus' body was there. No one produces Jesus' body. And this isn't something that, uh, about a legend that happened 10, 20 years after the fact. This is only a few months after. A few months after Jesus died and rose again, people preached that Jesus rose again. Luke then adds one more layer of evidence. When the Sanhedrin gets furious, the respected Rabbi Gamaliel uh, stands up in verse 34. He cautions them and says, Both uh, Theodos and Judas, the Galilean, had initial strong following, but since they weren't from God, their activity died down. But he continued in verse 39. If it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, of course, this isn't a general principle applied to all things. I mean, a lot of things that are not from God still continue. But Luke is recording this to add one more evidence to give us certainty of our faith. And the rest of Acts bear witness to the fact that people try their best. Satan tries its best to try to stop uh, Christianity from spreading. But it's a little bit like uh, that whack-a-mole game, right? When try, you try to squash it, another one springs up. And they can never stop Christianity from spreading because this is from God. Gamaliel's unwitting prophecy is fulfilled, and we see that in the rest of Acts. And finally, I think this is very important. Think about the boldness, boldness of the apostles that's highlighted in this text. This is another reason why we can be sure of our faith, because they were so bold. Remember, they were, they, the, the Sanhedrin told them, commanded them not to speak in Jesus' name, not to teach in Jesus' name, but that's what they're doing in verse 12. They're at Solomon's colonnade, at the temple, they're preaching about Jesus, they're teaching in Jesus' name. And it's comical, again, how that happens again in our passage. So they were jailed, and they were rescued, but then they are at the temple. They were at, uh, back at the temple in the morning in verse 21 because the angel of the Lord commanded them to go. The officials look for them everywhere else, but they're preaching right around the corner, right at the temple. 
And if you think about that, how can they be this bold? The apostles reply in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles are bold because they are completely convinced that they had, what they had seen and what they had experienced is true. They're bold because Jesus appeared to them. They're bold because the angel of the Lord came at night and freed them from the prison. They're bold because the Spirit was at work in them, and they were so sure that what they experienced was true. If they weren't sure of their faith, do you think they would have gone back the very morning they were freed from the prison to the temple courts to preach in Jesus' name again? If they weren't sure, do you think they could be this fearless? Do you think they could preach about Jesus in this way? They never stopped preaching. Luke writes in verse 42, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's true, we haven't seen Christ, but you can be sure that the apostles did. Apostles saw the Christ, risen Christ, This is one of the biggest evidence for Christianity and why we can be sure, against all odds, the church exists. People who had no reason to believe that one man was God started to believe that Jesus was God. The apostles risked their lives proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. As far as we know, the 11 out of 12 disciples went to far-flung corners of the earth, preaching, dying, trying to tell people about Jesus. And 11 died for their faith. People who were cowards who ran away at Jesus' arrest die for their faith. Would you do all of that for a lie? We can be sure of this. And if you're not, just take some time to investigate the early rise of Christianity, how this can be, what they preached about. Because there is enough historical evidence there to give you certainty, and Luke writes about that. But what's really interesting also is how people can stare at the evidence that is plain and simple and still deny it. Instead of repenting and turning to Christ, this is how the members of the Sanhedrin react. Verse 17, they were filled with jealousy. They see miracles, but they don't see God in these miracles. They only think about what they are losing when the apostles heal, they fear, uh, instead of peop- uh, God, they fear people. Verse 26. And if you think about Sa- the Sadducees, Sadducees actually had a vested interest in not changing the status quo. Recent scholars say that Sadducees were uh, essentially a loose confederation of wealthy and powerful men who took a secular pragmatic than a religious ideological stance. I got that uh, off of a dictionary. I don't really write like that. In other words... More than trying to figure out what God wants from us, their ethics and life was guided by what works. They preferred pragmatism over theology. It all makes sense, since they denied immortality of souls. They thought that this life was all they had. They taught that people are completely free, that God didn't interfere into people's lives. They didn't believe in the existence of angels or spiritual beings. They certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
No wonder they were rich and powerful in that world because that's what they tried. They tried so hard to get everything that they wanted in this life because this world is all they had. And by the way, doesn't that sound like a description of many people in Hong Kong? And as they had built their lives around not having an afterlife, they had everything to lose if what the apostles were proclaiming was true. If miracles happened, if God interfered in this world, if resurrection really happened and it signaled a new world, new creation that will come, most importantly, if God became a human being in Jesus Christ, they had to leave abandoned the way that they lived and live under the Lordship of Christ. And they didn't want to do that. So when they heard the apostles, they were threatened and they were jealous. So instead of finding out more, they start persecuting. They started defending their turf. When we read the Bible stories, we often identify immediately with the good guys, don't we? In this story, we, we, we're obviously the church. But could we be the Sadducees in this story? Let me ask, how invested are we in this world? The things that we try so hard to get Are they things of this world or the things that are coming in the future? Do we live as people who really believe in the resurrection, that there is a new world and a new creation that has been promised that will come? Or do we think that if we miss out in this world, that's it? We miss out for eternity. Do we think, is that how we think about our education Jobs, if we don't live, if we live in discomfort and diminished reputation, now do we think that's how it will always be? Aren't we a people who believe in the lifting up of the humble, the first becoming the last, and the last becoming the first? If we don't go on that holiday to Boracay before we die, do we believe that we'll never be able to see anything good like this? Aren't we people who believe in the new creation that is filled with the glory of the Lord in every corner of the creation, that we get to enjoy that for the rest of eternity, that we don't need to get that now? Do we believe in following Jesus Christ, even if it seems impractical? Or do we believe in pragmatism of this world? Do we believe in that there will be judgment, that God questions our motivations, that God will honor a different kind of people when he comes back? When the Sadducees saw the apostles, they were filled with jealousy. And I think that's a really great question to ask ourselves. What do we get jealous about? What's, because what we get jealous about, I think, it reveals what's in our hearts, what our idols are. What do we get jealous about? Do we get jealous for money? Children's success, house, status, vacation, gadgets, relationship, marriage. What does our jealousy reveal about how Sadducee-like we are? How attached are we to this world? Once again, what is really striking is how Sadducees were unwilling to give up anything for Christ, even if the evidence for Christ was staring right in front of them. On the other hand, the apostles are willing to give up everything, including their life. They believe that Jesus Christ is not only their Savior, but Jesus is their Lord, their Master, their owner. So when they're commanded to do something, they do it regardless of what it might cost them, including their life. 
Christians often talk about sacredness of life, but in the end, I think this is slightly misdirected. Yes, life should be protected. Yes, we bear the image of God in a way that no other thing on the creation does, and we we need to be protected. But Christians do not believe in preserving life at all costs. We do not believe in uh, sacredness of life, life for itself. This is how uh, Stanley Harawas, a Christian ethicist, uh, puts it. I often remind my, my right-to-life friends that Christians took their children with them to martyr them rather than to have them raise pagan. Christians believe that there is much worth dying for. We do not believe that human life is an absolute good in and of itself. To say that life is an overriding good is to underwrite the modern sentimentality that there is absolutely nothing in this world dying for. We do not believe life life uh, for the sake of life. We believe that we have been given a message that is even more precious than life itself, that there is something worth dying for and therefore something living for. And that's what we see in the apostles. They found something worth dying for. And take a look at how the, pers- uh, the, the, the apostles react to their persecution. Remember, they were at the brink of death sentence. And they escaped with flogging. And flogging wasn't a a, a small deal. Many people died in flogging. But as they come out, this is how they come out, out of the prison, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They rejoiced because they so identified with Christ that the world that hated Christ hated them also. They rejoiced because they bore the name of Christ in such a way that people in power were threatened and persecuted them. They rejoiced. And that sort of persecution and rejoicing still goes on. Ramaz Atala serves as the general director of the Bible Society in Egypt. A few days after the brutal beheading of the Coptic, 21 Coptic Christians in Libya last month, he wrote that he, was felt, uh, he felt sad and depressed when he went into his office. But then he, when he went into his office, he talked to a young co-worker who told him that she was encouraged. And he asked, how can you be encouraged? And she, she explained. She, she said, I think the quote is coming up, I'm encouraged because now I know that What we've been taught in history books about Egyptian Christians being martyred for their faith isn't just history, but there are Christians today who are brave enough to face death rather than to deny their Lord. When I saw those young men praying as they were being prepared for execution, and then many of them shouting, O Lord Jesus, as their throats were being slit, I realized the gospel can still help us to hold on to the promise of God even when facing death. I haven't seen the video, nor do I have the courage uh, to see it, but apparently the video uh, had the caption accusing them of what they were being executed for. It read, People of the Cross. They bore the name of Jesus and followed him all the way to their physical death. So let me ask again, are we ready to give up our life for Christ? Have we given our life for God? And if if the answer is yes, and I hope the answer is yes, I want you to know that was a slightly a trick question because I want to ask then, if you are willing to give up your life, then are you willing to give up? Are you willing to show that by giving up some of your money, some of your time, some of your energy 
your Sunday morning, some of your Wednesday evenings, because all of that belongs to Christ. Are you willing to meet up with people who are searching for Christ? And, you know, there are people who are searching for Christ, and I don't have enough people who can meet with them. Are you willing to meet up with people who are having a difficult time to give up some of your comforts? And I know that many of you do. Many of you do. I know that many who are here in this room are at the brink of burning up because you're part of the 20% who do everything in this church. People who are already stretched with godly priorities. I know. I want to thank you for that. But I also want to challenge the 80% of you who haven't had the chance to serve in this way. It should cost us something to follow Jesus. But we rejoice in such sacrifice. We rejoice when our bodies are tired, when we are persecuted, we forego holidays that we could go on because we have sacrificed that money um, to, uh, when we don't live that lifestyle that we could live because we have been uh, generous, because we are participating in the suffering of Christ. And as we participate in the suffering of Christ, Christ uh, promises us that we will also participate in that resurrection. You know, there is plenty of evidence that Christianity is true, that Jesus really rose again, that there is a new world that is coming. So don't be attached to this one. Be jealous for the godly things and follow Christ, no matter what it might cost you. I'm just going to end with uh, Paul, and as he writes about ministry and about Christian life. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the life that you've given us. We thank you for your son, his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you for the certainty of faith that you've given us. But Lord, help us to live in the light of that certainty. Help us to live knowing that there is a resurrection, that there is a new world that is coming, that following you, even if it means sacrifice right now, is joy. Give us that vision um, of the future. Give us a hope of that resurrection that we may live um, as many who have done, who have gone before us have lived. Send us your Holy Spirit and help us to live in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.